This episode is brought to you by Vimeo, home to the world's best filmmakers. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Emily Booter. And I'm John Fusco. It is February 23rd, 2017, and on this week's show, everything's coming up indie. There's a brand new awards show that celebrates truly independent films, indie cinemas are banding together nationwide for a cause, and Fujinan is going after the indie shooter market with its new emote zooms. As always, the show will bring news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to this week's show. Here we are in downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. And as always, we'll bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy working on film projects. Starting with... The American Independent Film Awards. Aside from being awarded competition jury awards at festivals, indie films often get completely shut out of the awards game. Now, I know you are about to vehemently disagree with that statement. You might say, but La La Land is tied for the most Oscar nominations in the history of the Academy Awards. And you would be right. In fact, we're both right. Why? Because nobody can agree on what constitutes an indie film anymore. Last night, I spoke with the producer of Hacksaw Ridge, who called his $40 million film an indie. And technically, it is. If we go by the conventional criteria, that is, which is that indies are films shot outside the studio system. By those standards, La La Land is an indie. And you are right. Even though it costs $30 million, it's an indie. So let's take a look at the actual award shows for indies. As of a week ago, there were two main award shows dedicated to the as-yet-undefined indie film. These were the Gotham Independent Film Awards, which happened in November, and the Indie Spirit Awards, happening this weekend, right before the Oscars. The nominees for the former are more indie per se than the latter. The Gotham Awards nominees were Certain Women, Patterson, Moonlight, Manchester by the Sea, and Everybody Wants Them, while the Indie Spirits were more Oscar-heavy, nominating Jackie, Moonlight, American Honey, Manchester by the Sea, and Chronic. Obviously, some of these films, and most notably Moonlight and Manchester by the Sea, made it to the Oscars, which is great. But as of this week, there's a new kid on the block, the American Indie Film Awards. Listen to these nominees. Best Feature, White Girl, Always Shine, The Other Side, Henry Gamble's Birthday Party, The Eyes of My Mother, Little Sister, The Invitation, Kate Plays Christine, the Fitz, and Cresha. If you've noticed a discrepancy between the nominees of these three indie award shows, it's because the new American Indie Film Awards celebrate films with a budget of $1 million or less only. And for reference, Moonlight's budget was $5 million, and while that's still obviously impressively low, it's not micro-budget, and it's not what people would consider traditionally indie. The American Indie Film Awards website manifesto reads, quote, the most commonly used term to describe independent cinema is a film that was produced outside the studio system. Misappropriated, misused, mislabeled, and all too encompassing, the AIFA strives to root the term indie to its core values, economy of means, and more authentic definition, an independently financed and produced film that reflects the creative conditions and budget parameters and represents the diverse majority community at large. So perhaps we need a better definition to delineate the terms of indie film, such that it accounts for the veritable indie films, namely micro-budget and low-budget endeavors, and larger films produced outside the studio system. So these AIFA awards happened this past week, right? Yes, they did. So who won? Um, Krisha. 
Yeah, Krisha won Best Director, Best Film, Best Lead Performance, and Best Score, I think. And there might have been another one. But yeah, it totally dominated, uh, which was, I guess, rightful. It was a pretty awesome movie. And I mean, if we're talking about making a film in the micro-budget conditions, he just used his family to make that movie, essentially. So Yeah, the first the first attempt at the film was $30,000. So that's quite my tr- micro-budget. We actually have an interview with Kreisha's director, Trey Edward Schultz, on NoFilmSchool.com that details the backstory of this movie. It's one of those ones where the making of is almost as interesting as what was clearly a very interesting film itself. So can I just ask, in your guys' opinion, what the importance of sort of delineating indie films from major studio pictures are as far as like awards go? I think it's important because the Oscars are the most visible award ceremony. And if we're talking about visibility, visibility means more recognition and therefore more future money for productions on indie films. And if people that aren't really acquainted with the indie film marketplace look and say, oh, it's fine. La La Land is an indie film. It got an Oscar nomination. They're kind of missing the point in that like, there are a lot of very small films that are still struggling for recognition and visibility. I think what a lot of your average Jane and Joes who aren't in the industry don't realize is that a lot of Oscar films are campaigned for. They don't just sort of show up as Oscar nominees. There are teams of people advocating for them to uh, to be nominated and to win. And so an indie film really is never, like a truly indie film with a low budget is never really on the same playing field because if it had a lower budget for production, it also likely had a much lower budget for marketing, the idea of putting films below a certain budget level in their own playing field that might ultimately give them the kind of recognition that a higher budget film would get, I think is really, really important, certainly for indie makers. So moving on, we mentioned a couple weeks ago on the show President Trump's plans to shutter the National Endowment for the Arts here in the U.S. Last week, the administration circulated a list of proposed agencies to dismantle And the NEA is indeed on it, along with the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which is our country's only independent nonprofit broadcasting agency and is majorly responsible for National Public Radio and the PBS network, home to many, many Emmy Award winning documentaries, among other highly acclaimed programming from around the world. As a direct response, independent cinemas across the U.S. will be showing the film 1984 about an authoritarian government on April 4th. Michael Radford's film, which originally came out in 1985, was based on the George Orwell novel of the same name. According to a joint statement issued by the 90 participating theaters across 34 states, April 4th was chosen because it's the day that George Orwell's protagonist, Winston Smith, begins rebelling against his oppressive government by keeping a forbidden diary. The statement goes on to say, Quote, Orwell's portrait of a government that manufactures their own facts, demands total obedience, and demonizes foreign enemies has never been timelier. By doing what they do best, showing a movie, the goal is that cinemas can initiate a much-needed community conversation at a time when the existence of facts and basic human rights are under attack. If you run a screening space and would like to participate, email unitedstateofcinema at gmail.com. Along similar lines, even the Screen Actors Guild, or SAG, is wading into political waters. After a long history of explicitly avoiding political matters, we reported last month on SAG's statement against the administration's travel ban, claiming that it would adversely affect our industry. 
Earlier this week, the organization issued another statement aimed at current political affairs, this time in support of a free press. Although no formal laws have emerged yet that hinder a free press, President Trump has explicitly and publicly called the entire media the enemy of the American people. That's right, y'all. You're hearing right now from the enemy of the American people. The belly of the beast. Rawr. Anyway, SAG responded by saying, quote, John, would you like to be SAG <laughs> since you are an actor? Yeah, I can do our this official SAG, SAG rep. <laughs> uh, only if they accept this as currency for my uh, membership this year. But let's see. As a union whose membership includes broadcast and online journalists, SAG-AFTRA champions the rights of a free press, whose primary role is to provide citizens with the information they need to effectively govern a democracy. Citizens in a democracy need the truth. Journalists have an obligation to monitor and question those in power, pointing out wrongdoing when they find it, noting when facts asserted are not supported by evidence, and reporting inconsistencies in the positions of public figures. Well, you sounded just like SAG. I thought you were SAG. That was my character of SAG guy. Anyway, we have no doubt that some of SAG's members will issue their own political statements of sorts when accepting awards this weekend. And if the earlier awards shows this year are any indication, the Oscars and Indie Spirit speeches will be ones to watch. We can't wait. Speaking of the Oscars, a new study by statisticians at St. Lawrence University, this is my new favorite tongue twister, has analyzed all 92 Best Picture nominees dating back to 2006. And the findings are utterly unshocking. Male leads were on screen an average of 43% of the time compared to just 22% of their female counterparts. As we know from past studies, that gap increases even further when we're talking about lines spoken by male versus female actors. But here's the thing. The numbers of women on screen are actually improving. And here's what's important for those of us trying to make films for a living. That is, in turn, improving films profitability. Another new report, this one conducted by the Center for the Study of Women in Television and Film at San Diego State University, found more female actors had leading roles in films last year than in years prior. According to the study, females comprised 29% of protagonists in the 100 top-grossing films of 2016. While that's obviously still not representative of the numbers of women in the population, it's actually a recent historical high and a 7% increase from 2015. It's worth noting that these women aren't just playing traditional women's roles or female-targeted films. Look at Amy Adams in the sci-fi blockbuster Arrival or Felicity Jones in the Rogue One Star Wars movie. Studies are showing again and again that diversity on screen is good for business. Yet another new one, this one by UCLA's Ralph J. Bunch Center for African American Studies. (laughs) Ralph J. Bunch, I'm sorry. It sounds like a Simpsons character. It does. Anyway... His center reviewed the 200 top-grossing theatrical film releases in 2015. It found that the median global box office intake was highest that year, $105 million, for the 25 films with casts that were from 21% to 30% minority. By way of comparison, median global box office was only $41.9 million for the 64 films with casts that were 10% minority or less. So in other words, 64 films with casts that were 10% minority or less made less than half than 25 films that had more minority representation. Whoa. I know. So those are some numbers right there. Big surprise. People want to see themselves reflected on screen, and we are a diverse nation. A diverse world. In our ongoing miniseries, The Bottom Line... 
The bottom line is that even if you don't see moral or ethical value in casting women and minorities, it's increasingly beneficial to your film's potential profits to do so. And before moving into gear news, I just want to make quick mention of a very cool new resource for your projects. The Metropolitan Museum of Art here in New York has now made all of the images of public domain artworks in its collection, about 375,000 to be exact, available free for use in your films or any other way that you might want to. The museum's offering unrestricted use of these images under Creative Commons Zero License, and you can browse and download them at metmuseum.org. Very cool. What's a Creative Commons Zero License? Is that the same as a Creative Commons license? It's one of the types of Creative Commons licenses that basically means like you own nothing. There's zero restrictions. Right. You yeah. can just use it for whatever and without any credit or anything? Free willy. Wow. I don't know about the crediting. You'll have to look at the license, which is linked with every single one of the 375,000 images. Copyright free willy. And for this week's gear news, here's Charles Hain. Hi, Charles. Hey, Liz. So we're going to start off with something that I never would have imagined saying a decade ago, which is the under $5,000 cine zoom market is getting hot which is crazy. Uh, so this morning, Fujifilm officially released their MK1855 T2.9 zoom lens, uh, which we were lucky to test here at No Film School last week. It's a really impressive lens with clean, neutral color balance, a great smoothness to the bokeh, and like kind of a creamy feel despite being tech sharp. It's also light, coming in at only 990 grams, and has a built-in macro and back focus. The main competition to this lens, obviously, is the Sigma CineZoom, which we're going to be reviewing here in a couple weeks. But the Fujifilm is wildly impressive lens. It's going to be the right choice for a lot of applications. Um, there are a couple features that put ahead of the Sigma, um, but there's one place the Sigma is ahead of it. it the Sigma is almost a stop wider. So check out our review for full details and a bunch of uh, sample images from the Fujifilm. And isn't this one of Fujifilm's like first forays into the more indie market? Oh, yeah. A cine zoom for $3,800 is by far a big move from Fujifilm into this world. They've had some cine zooms for a while that are a much higher price point and really beautiful. And, um, you know, Fujinon is obviously, Fujifilm used to be called Fujinon, has had a lot of nice lenses for a long time, but this is a major step into this price point and marketplace. And uh, it's going to be a great lens for UFS7 fans. Uh, it's going to be a great lens for like A7S jobs. There's a lot of applications. Yeah, for this that's lens. a Sony a Sony mount, right? Yeah, it's coming with the Sony E mount, and then in a year it'll come out with X mount, um, which will make me happy because then it'll fit my XT2, and it'll expand from there. We hope. Cool. Next up in gear news, uh, it's rare we see developers bring back the previously dropped features. If it's unloved enough to drop, there's rarely enough interest to bring it back. But there must have been a lot of public grumbling about this because Avid, with version 8.8, .8, has brought back two features that were loved enough to keep a lot of users staying way back with Media Composer 7 just to keep these two features working. Phrase Find and Script Sync are those two features, and they're awesome. Basically, let's say you've got 20 hours of footage and you know somewhere in there there's a moment where one of your characters says, Beautiful Sunset. What you do in every other editing software is you skim all of your footage looking for those words. And if you have 20 hours of footage, it could take you hours if you don't remember exactly where it is. With Phrase Find, you literally open the Phrase Find window, type beautiful sunset, and it shows you every time someone says those words. It's unbelievable. It's 
crazy. ScriptSync builds on that amazing tech by tying it to a script. So you can like highlight an individual word in your script, a line in your script, which you import into ScriptSync, and then it'll show you all of your options for that line from like close-ups and wide shots. So as you're like doing an edit and you're like, I don't like the delivery in this take, you can just pull up all the other takes. Um, it's a really tremendous, uh, huge time saver. When it first came out with version seven, there was an interview with the dude who edits the office who was like, this saves me like 25% of my day. And it totally does. Um, so version 8.8 isn't just a reintroduction of those two features. They've both been updated and specifically phrase find and script sync are supposed to have better recognition for accents and dialects, which will help with a large variety of projects. So we had a really exciting post go up this week that had our commenters going crazy. Yep, that's you guys. DP's Oren Soffer, Charlie Anderson, Alex Chinichi, and Justin Derry did an in-depth camera shootout between two of the cameras that our readers have gotten most excited about in recent years. Charles, can you tell us about it? I can. So, as the Red and Alexa platforms mature, with new sensors and resolutions hitting the market all the time, it's good to continually do shootouts between the cameras to make sure you have a handle not just on how, like, last year's Red and Alexa compared, but also the latest and greatest flavors of the sensor. This test compared the Arri Alexa Mini with the ALEV sensor to the Red Epic W with Helium sensor. To be clear, both cameras performed really admirably in this test, and they're obviously going to continue to be popular platforms for years to come. Um, the Red has the advantage in terms of resolution with 8K out of the Epic W Helium, as opposed to a little under 4K with the Alexa Mini. Um, and in the test, it was shown that the Red had a slight advantage in noise and grain at higher ISOs, which is a huge boon for low-light projects. But the most noticeable place where the Alexa went out was about one to one and a half stops of extra latitude in the highlights. Now, both cameras have like more than 10 stops of latitude, which is a lot of latitude. But the Alexa clips your highlights a little bit less, and that's something. And uh, you could really see the results in the test. If you need 8K or you're doing a job with a lot of night work, the red is probably going to be your choice. But if you're shooting a desert day exterior job, it's really worth giving the new Alexa sensor a comparison test to the red when you're making that decision. And we will link to that shootout with all the associated images. And they also offered us uh, downloads of their original footage for you to play with uh, at nofilmschool.com. And Charles, I'm going to ask you to stick around after the break for our Ask No Film School question. Woohoo! If you work in video post-production, you know that shaving off a couple steps from your workflow can save you hours. Vimeo's new panel for Adobe Premiere Pro does just that. It lets you upload videos straight to your Vimeo account without even leaving Premiere. Plus, you can create video review pages and share them with as many people as you want. It's post-production simplified. Learn more at vimeo.com slash adobe dash panel. So hi again. This week in Ask No Film School, Noah Rossi wrote to ask, why do my exports look different on YouTube, more saturated, than in Final Cut Pro X? Oh, God. Welcome to the frustrating hell of being a filmmaker who cares about image quality. Imagine. I know. It's, ah. Oh. So, yes, part of the problem probably has to do with the way YouTube and Final Cut Pro deal with RGB differently. You mentioned that in your question, and that's probably part of it. But the bigger issue is that there's no set of consistent standards for what image is supposed to look like on the internet. 
It's a complete and total Wild West. There are great images online of like even different generations of iPhone having different color casts. So theaters used to be like this too, with like the final volume and projector brightness set by the projectionist. So it was different in every theater. When George Lucas came out with Star Wars, he would go to different theaters and see it, and he would be driven nuts by the fact that, like, in one theater it's too warm, in one theater it's too bright, in one theater it's too loud. So he set out to create THX to create standards for theaters of a set brightness and a set color and a set volume so that there would be consistency. So, like, you are not alone in your frustration. George Lucas had the same problem, but he had billions of dollars to fix it with. But with non-television video, we have no standard. So that means your image is going to look differently in Final Cut Pro X than it does in YouTube, Vimeo, QuickTime Player, VLC, wherever you view it. Because all of those platforms process the image differently. It's so frustrating. While it might help to have a broadcast monitor, that's mostly going to tell you what the image will look like when it's broadcast. So if you're working in television, you've got to have a broadcast monitor. But if your final output's YouTube, a broadcast monitor is not going to help you that much. What I recommend doing is building individual compression settings in compressor or media encoder for every outlet. So in those programs, you can change things like gamma, saturation, and what I do is I have a YouTube setting that I built that I like, and I think it makes the footage look on YouTube like it does on my broadcast monitor to my preference. Um, I also have a Vimeo setting. I have a Facebook video setting, and I apply those whenever I do an encode to upload to the internet. And you build these by testing. You make your project, you export a full res ProRes master, and then you put it through compressor, making a whole bunch of different gamma and saturation settings and uploading each one to an individual file that has like the gamma settings in the file name. And then you upload them all to YouTube, password protected so nobody can see them, and you watch them all. And then you pick the one that looks like you want it to look, that looks closest to the way you see it in Final Cut Pro X. And... I would watch it on a bunch of different computers, PC and Mac. I'd watch it on iPhone. I'd watch it on Android before you settle on your YouTube setting. Then, one day, YouTube is going to change the way they encode. This happens every once in a while. And then you'll have to build all new settings from scratch. Wah, wah. Yeah, it's really frustrating. But it's good that you care. It's good that you notice these things. And uh, you're not alone in this frustration and in learning to navigate it. Good luck. Yeah, the too long didn't read version is, uh, it's a pain in the ass, but it can be fixed. TLDR. TLDR. Thanks, Noah, for your question. And thank you, Charles, for your answer. My pleasure. So if you're curious about which movies are opening this week, coming to VOD on Amazon Prime Instant is Captain Fantastic on February 27th, otherwise known as My Golden Birthday, as I will be turning 27 on February 27th. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This film was a big hit at Sundance back in 2016, and it was also a big box office hit. It's written and directed by Matt Ross, who most people might otherwise recognize as Gavin Belson from Silicon Valley. The biggest reason to check out this film is a very solid performance from Viggo Mortensen, for which he's been nominated for an Oscar, Golden Globe, and BAFTA. Mortensen plays a father living in the Pacific Northwest, who's devoted to raising his six kids with a rigorous physical and intellectual education. He's forced to leave his paradise and enter the world, challenging his idea of what it means to be a parent. And coming to Netflix on February 24th, you can already check out I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, which is Megan Blair's first feature, which debuted at Sundance less than a month ago. The movie won the Grand Jury Prize there, 
And Oakley Anderson Moore should be interviewing Macon, I, I think, right? Yeah, she did it already. It's going up this week. That's awesome. So we'll have that up next week. And if you didn't already know, we're big Macon Blair fans here. As he co-sponsored the first annual Macon Bacon, unofficial Macon Blair Bacon Film Fest with us <laughs> this year. Love you, Macon Bacon. He was really quite an influential uh, figure for that film festival. And, you know, we had a grand total of one entry to that film festival and are just greatly looking forward to next year's riveting selections. But enough about the success of that festival. I don't feel at home in this world anymore stars Elijah Wood and Melanie Linsky. Melanie Linsky plays a depressed woman whose house is burglarized, which leads her to find a new sense of purpose by tracking down the thieves with her obnoxious neighbor, who is played by Elijah Wood. They soon find themselves dangerously out of their depth against a pack of degenerate criminals. Macon Blair is the star of Blue Ruin and Green Room, so this sort of everyday man action flick and this even this plot or this premise should come naturally to him. Touching down on HBO on Whoa. my golden birthday. Ew, touching, touching down. Touching down. <laughs> on my golden birthday, in case you missed that, is Tickled, which is about one of the weirdest fetishes I've ever heard of, but in fact it is very popular and has a huge market for it. No judgments. No judgments. This is another Sundance standout from 2016. The Grand Jury Prize-nominated doc is directed by David Ferrier and Dylan Reeve. It's about people who get tickled on video for money. They're stripped topless, strapped to a bed, picture this, and then tickled for fetish or competitive purposes. Um, Oftentimes, those two are very closely related. Mm -hmm. There is actually a pretty strong market, as I mentioned, for people who want to watch other people getting tickled. When the journalist at the center of this film, David Ferrier, got wind of this strange world, he decided to look deeper into it and came up against some pretty fierce resistance because this is a very, you know, tightly controlled world. But that didn't stop him from getting to the bottom of this strange fetish. There was a lot of controversy surrounding the film when representatives of the tickling community attended the premieres and accused the filmmakers of distorting what it is they love and do. What I have to say about that is, get out! Well, that's interesting that you should say that exact phrase, because our next movie that we're highlighting is coming to theaters this Friday, February 24th, and it's called Get Out! Get Get Out! (laughs) Get Out! Okay, get Get out out of here, guys. Jim Jun Jim. Leave the booth. Get out. All right. So the trailer for this film actually came in at number five in our 2016 best trailers list, mostly because it has one of the most unorthodox premises for any upcoming release in 2017. The trailer quickly went viral this year in a particularly contentious climate concerning race relations within the United States. So in that vein, Get Out certainly isn't your run-of-the-mill horror film. It's written and directed by Jordan Peele of Key and Peele and Keanu fame and follows a young black man who visits his white girlfriend's affluent family for the first time. But the town holds a mysterious and horrifying secret of, I guess, whitewashing black people and racism. Very interesting premise. And, you know, it looks like a great example of how a screenwriter or director can bend genre to fill many different needs with one film. Taking on a hot button political issue by infusing humor with classic horror tropes to depict a struggle between race and class that many of us may not have experienced firsthand. The movie currently has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, comes out in two days, so we'll hope that stays true. Our writer, Dylan Dempsey, is covering a panel discussion with Peel, Allison Williams, and Daniel Kaluuya from the film, and that'll be up on the site this week. Needless to say, we've all been excited to see how this one turns out, 
And now we can finally get the chance to do it. I'm seeing it at Draft House, and I'm really excited. Ooh, get out. Also coming to theaters on Friday, which is three days before Emily's golden birthday, is My Life as a Zucchini. Ooh, cool. I like zucchinis. This film was nominated for Best Animated Feature of the Year in this weekend's Oscars, and it just played at Sundance last month, so it's a real quick turnaround for theatrical. The movie is about a young boy who's sent to a foster home with other orphans his age after his mother disappears, and at the orphanage, he begins to learn the meaning of trust and true love. Do you need to go to the bathroom? No, it just sounds so cute. She needs help. He needs help. Okay, all right, so... Wait, so this isn't about vegetables, though. This is about real kids. Our writer, Sophia Harvey, interviewed the film's director, Claude Barras, as part of our Sundance coverage, and you can read that one on nofilmschool.com. And now moving on to some upcoming deadlines and events. On February 28th, you can apply for the Vision Sudest Fund. If you're a filmmaker based in Asia, Africa, Latin America, or Eastern Europe, and you're looking for either production or post-production support, this fund can be good for 20,000 Swiss francs on narrative features and 10,000 Swiss francs for documentaries. The fund was set up to support film productions from these regions, and it aims to make them more visible worldwide, while also guaranteeing their distribution in Switzerland. Also with a deadline on February 28th, the Nickelodeon Writing Program. We actually mentioned this great opportunity back in January, but submissions are finally closing this month. If you've ever wanted to write for Nickelodeon, this writing program gives you a salaried position for a year as you get hands-on experience writing specs and pitching stories. Alum from the project have gone on to create their own Nickelodeon shows and write for all sorts of TV series and films. And while in the program, you get the chance to meet series creators, work in writer's room, and receive hands-on experience writing spec scripts and pitching story ideas in both live action and animated television. To get in, you have to submit a spec script based on a number of different TV programs that you can check out online. So, like... One of those was make a make your own episode of Adventure Time or make your own episode of Rugrats. Sounds like a pretty cool, uh, fun exercise. Anyways, this was my dream of the '90s. And finally, on March 1st is the deadline for Vision Maker 2017 Public Media Content Fund, which invites proposals for programs intended for public television that represent the experiences, values, and cultures of American Indians and Alaska Natives. Very important. Uh, stories to be told for sure this year. As for festival deadlines, on February 27th, which if you didn't know was my golden birthday. In case you guys really didn't hear, it is Emily's (laughs) golden birthday. Just to make sure. Write it down. (laughs) The Boston Short Film Festival, which takes place from July 12th to 15th, 2017. They have deadlines every month until May, but the earlier you submit, the cheaper the entry fee, and who doesn't like Cheap stuff. Cheap stuff. So if you're going to buy Emily something for her birthday, get her something cheap. (laughs) (laughs) The winner of this short film festival wins $500, with which you can buy my birthday present, and (laughs) automatic submissions into various other film festivals around the world. If you're on the West Coast, there is another Shorts Film Festival you might think about applying to, and that is the Seattle Shorts Film Festival, which has a deadline on February 28th. This film festival takes place September 9th to 10th, 2017. They accept narrative short films of less than 30 minutes in length, and they're also expanding their programming this year with their newest category, music videos. 
The Charlotte Film Festival also has a deadline on February 28th. This takes place from September 22nd to October 1st, 2017. And there are many cash prizes for the best narrative feature, documentary feature, narrative short film, narrative documentary short film, and student documentary or narrative. On February 28th, the Humboldt International Film Festival has a deadline, taking place in Humboldt, California from April 19th to 22nd, and the fact that it falls on 420 might just be a coincidence. We're not sure. Probably not. Probably not. Bro. Two Humboldt State University students began the festival way back in 1967 when Humboldt was very much a different place, I think, than it is today. I think it was just like a grove of redwoods and a few desks back then. Yes, and some giant hippies. Mm Mm-hmm. The festival is now internationally recognized as the longest student-run film festival in the world because it's been running for 50 years, and it's put on in conjunction with Humboldt State University. It's been running for 50 years straight? 50 years. That's a long film festival. Who knew that they would be so disciplined down in Humboldt to be able to do this every year? Yeah, they buckle down. And on March 1st, we have the extended deadline for the Lower East Side Film Festival. This takes place in New York City from June 8th to the 15th. And last year we did some coverage there and managed to check out a few of the panels, including one great horror thriller screenwriting panel with Jeremy Saulnier and Silence of the Lambs screenwriter Ted Tolley. And uh, we can't wait to see what they got this year. I think we've mentioned that panel more than anything else ever on this podcast. (laughs) I think we've mentioned your birthday today more (laughs) than we've mentioned that panel. But yes, today, today for sure. Speaking of Emily's golden birthday next Monday... Before that time, we will be covering the Film Independent Spirit Awards on Saturday and the Oscars on Sunday in real time. Indie darling Mark Duplass wrote an open letter to the Academy advocating for Moonlight as best picture and calling it his favorite film of the last 10 years. This film is also nominated for best feature at the Spirit Awards, but will it beat out La La Land, which has swept just about every above and below the line awards show so far this season? We shall see. My guess is no. Leading up to the big events, we've got a bunch of awards-related posts on the site, including a cool video that explores the final scenes of 45 Oscar-winning films, downloads of the Oscar-nominated screenplays, and of course, our roundup of which cameras were used on the Oscar-nominated films of 2017. So you can see links to those posts along with everything else we've talked about in this show in this week's podcast post at nofilmschool.com. There's also a post up there um, that's like a rundown of supercuts of the below the line categories. So if you have an Oscar ballot and you don't really know any of the below the line Oscar nominations, you should check it out. And Except it'll that help voting you. has already closed. Who's voting? <laughs> oh, if you have I your thought, own Oscar ballot. Oh, your own oh, Oscar like for an ballot. Oscar Not like party. if you're someone who's voting on the Oscars. The Academy, <laughs> if you're in the Academy and you don't know, you've got bigger problems. If you have an Oscar party ballot. <laughs> and you can use your winnings from that Oscar party ballot to get Emily a birthday present. And John, it was John's, it was just his birthday. So we shouldn't forget. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's all that needs to be said about that. No, it's true, you guys. We had John's birthday on Monday, and we have Emily's birthday next Monday. It's a very exciting week here at No Film School. Happy birthday, everybody. And speaking of next Monday, John, won't we have an interview podcast coming out? Yeah, Liz, we will. You want to tell us what it's about? Oh, yeah. Thanks for reminding me. I'm actually really excited about Monday's episode. It's a roundtable of 
VR directors who did um, projects at this year's Sundance New Frontiers VR Palace. And it was such a really interesting year for virtual reality at the festival because all of the filmmakers I spoke to were really going outside the boundaries, using VR for, I think, what it really has potential for. Not the same old stuff that we've seen. They're like... um, especially doing narrative work in virtual reality and kind of kind of bucking convention and proving that virtual reality has a real potential for storytelling in a cinematic way. And so we'll get to hear a lot about their behind the scenes and techniques and um, yeah, how they made it all happen. So it should be a great episode uh, this coming Monday of our interview podcast. Happy Oscars weekend. Please subscribe to the No Film School podcast on iTunes. Check us out at nofilmschool.com. And of course, stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. At E.L. Booter. At Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Thanks, guys. See you next week. <laughs>